and follow podcast. Welcome. I can count on one hand the number of people who I am reasonably certain that I am on the same page with spiritually. So my present objective is to expand that number either by finding more individuals who are of like precious faith or improving my relationship with those I already know. This week's podcast includes a discussion that touches on some of the issues related to carrying out the instruction from God to all agree and be united in the same mind and judgment. The discussion ends with a consideration of the Bible definition of the word death and serves as a good transition to next week's topic which will be choose life. Your comments and questions are always welcome. You can email me at james at believeandfollow.org. I notice that quite often when you're worshiping with people, you get together and you do whatever. You do the Lord's Supper, you listen to a guy preach a sermon, and you don't ever have conversation about what you really believe. So when an issue comes up, then the first thing that you realize is that everybody's not on the same page concerning whatever the issue is. I think it's helpful to get on the same page first and then do some worshiping together. Because that's God's instruction. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 says that we should be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, that's not going to happen if we don't even know what each other's minds and judgments are. So that's why quite often, particularly if it's with somebody new, I start off with, so what do you believe? Do you believe that God exists? I do. Okay. What does God expect from you? I'm not entirely sure. That's what I'm trying to... That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Okay, I'm not going to ask question three. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So did you have any questions then? Did you have any specific questions about God or about... What do you think God would expect from you? Mm. Specific questions regarding that? I mean, I guess just how did we go about figuring that out? Ah, that's a good question. You want to take a stab at answering that before I take a stab? I mean, to me, from what I am seeing, um, it's that you have to just read the Bible, you know, as often as you can, and then, I guess, pray so that, pray that the Spirit will instruct you, I guess, in what the Bible is actually saying. That's a good answer. I was reading this verse yesterday, but in Acts chapter 17, 
Do you have a Bible on your phone? I do. Ah. And that's generally write down the verse first. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, now, notes, notes is good. I'm, I'm usually bad at taking notes, and then afterwards I'm like, oh, what, did he, what did he say? What was he talking about? So in Acts chapter 17, verse number 11, earlier in the chapter, Paul and Silas were in uh, Thessalonica, and they were preaching the gospel at a synagogue, and then what happened is some of the Jews listened to him, and then some of the Jews got jealous and stirred up the people against them, so they had to leave town in a hurry. So then they went off to Berea, and they started preaching the gospel there in Berea. The word makes a comment about the Bereans. Do you want to read, since I usually call Jeremy, Jeremy the Berean. Sure. Read Acts 17, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So some people came to them who they had not known before. They may have heard of these guys, right? And they, they, they come preaching to them. And first of all, they were eager to listen to them, which is good. So they were open-minded. They weren't like, yeah, we know what we're doing. We don't need, we don't need anybody telling us anything. And there are a lot of people that are like that, and sometimes, you know, you can be kind of gullible. If you're going to be open-minded, you're going to accept whatever people bring. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, they will go that way. But what they did was they added to their open-mindedness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they didn't just take a peek once and say, okay, I agree, I disagree, whatever. They examined it daily. And the fact that it mentions daily is very interesting because if you're doing something every day, what do you suppose is gonna happen to your expertise in doing that thing, whatever it is? You get better at it. You get better at it, you get good at it. And you'll get well, no pun intended, but well-versed in it also. If you're studying the scriptures daily, then you'll eventually get to know the scriptures and that's very helpful if somebody comes telling you something, because quite often you hear these days people telling you all sorts of things. Well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, you know, the end of the world's coming. Even besides that, though, people come and tell you all sorts of things, what you need to do. And you see all sorts of people with wide variety of religious practices, right? You see people walking around wearing burgers and things like that. You see Jewish people on their head and everything else. Are these things necessary? Is that what God wants you to do? Does God want you to have a, wear a little beanie on your head? You know, what, is, what does God want you to do? Well, to answer those questions, you would go to the Bible because this is God's Word. Why do we think it's God's Word? Do you think it's God's Word? Do you think the Bible is God's Word? Since you were raised in a um, church kind of relationship, what do you think about that, first of all? I mean, I do think that because that's what I was um, told, and that's what I was brought up. Right. Um, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that I did have doubt whether or not it was actually it God's is or isn't, because the only proof that it is is in the Bible, because the Bible says so, because God is the Word, so therefore the Word came from God, but like outside of that, where else do you find proof? Well, that's a good question. So outside of it, where do you find proof? I mean, there's, well, first of all, you can see by creation, the 
is one example of, of you know, God, the God of the Bible being real, I guess. But um, you have a lot of historical proof uh, that you know a lot of these things took place, uh, like that Jesus came, that there were, you know, the, the sudden explosion of Christianity all of a sudden. You have um, the the history of the Jewish nation, like a lot of those things, you know, are they they see you know when they excavate things and like that, you'll see the evidence for that. Like like for instance, like a year ago, they they found the city of the the giants, like where they think Goliath, like his clan or whatever, came from. So that was kind of cool. Um, one funny one, I think I told you this, but one funny one, like two months ago, they excavated a place in the Middle East where they found the remnants of a certain civilization. And so a lot of, a lot of media <laughs> groups looked, you know, they got this idea that, you know, God said in the Bible to the Israelites, destroy them completely. And then they looked here, and they're like, no, we still see evidence of these people here. So, you know, the Bible's wrong. The Bible got it wrong. But if they had followed up and gone a couple of chapters farther, you would see where the Bible says, but the Israelites did not destroy them completely. <laughs> so, so basically refuting exactly what, what these news organizations were saying, you know, the Bible was wrong. Is the Bible saying, nope, the Israelites didn't kill them all, and so they're still going to be there. Yeah, a lot of these, to me, I mean, those are exciting, you know, thing, times and persuasive to hear about them. I've seen that kind of thing repeated many, many times over the years where, where they say, well, the Bible talks about such and such, and there's no archaeological evidence of that. And then some years later, the archaeological evidence crops up and supports the Bible. If you get a judge is trying to judge between two witnesses, right? A judge, one witness is saying one thing, and the other witness is saying the other thing. Well, how does a judge decide who's telling the truth and who's not? Well, the judge does gather some other information. If person A is lying about something else, then that's going to call everything that they say into question. But if the witness is telling the truth on things that you can establish, then that gives you more uh, reason to believe that the things that you don't know, that that person is being truthful about. A lot of the writings of the Bible were not written by unknown people. For example, who wrote the book of Psalms? Much of the book of Psalms. David. David, right. David was what? What was his what was his job? King. Yeah, he was the second king of Israel. So it's like if we had, well, you know, George Washington wrote this graphic novel when he was younger. People are going to be diligent in figuring out, well, did he actually write a graphic novel? If he didn't, people would come out and say, no, 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 he never wrote that. Mm. You know, just like about George Washington, you have that fable about him coming down the cherry tree. You, you know that one? I'm sorry, the long fable about George Washington where he, when he was a kid, he cut down the cherry tree and his father goes, who cut this cherry tree down? And he says, I cannot tell a lie, it was me. That turns out that that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. 
was people who investigated it. It's a cute little story, yeah. and people made it up sometime later. Is the Bible true stuff, or is the Bible stuff that people made up later? It's one question. So, for example, the writings of David were writings of the king of the nation of Israel that were accepted as at, at the time and passed down. So there was nobody saying that, well, you know, that you know, somebody later. Because you can do that. We could say right now, oh, here's an ancient writing by, that was written by the, you know, the king of Israel, and who's going to be able to question it? But you have the history, the history of it. You also have that a number of these characters were actual real it's hard to establish that, uh, let's say, Noah or some of the really, really ancient characters, if they really exist, it would be hard to establish that because they didn't have social security numbers, you know, they, you know, they didn't have, you know, there's not much physical evidence we could come up with. But if we go to the more recent people, so was Jesus Christ an actual historical figure who actually existed? Is there evidence outside the Bible that Jesus actually existed? Yeah, there is. People often refer to the historian Josephus and, and you know, Antiquities of the Jews. And he actually wrote, he was a historian, not a believer, but said, yeah, there's this guy Jesus Christ, and he was raised from the dead. That was just one of the facts that he reported in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews. So that is other information outside of the Bible that supports that what the Bible says is correct. If you read through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is kind of like just a, a, a travel log of the church being started up, a lot of the incidents that are recorded in the book of Acts are recorded in other places also. I haven't heard, and really it's been studied by universities for thousands of years, and I haven't heard anything anyone has come up with and said, well, that's not in the Bible, or that's a contradiction, or that's something. And it turned out to be correct. You know, it's not just the Bible saying it's the Word of God, but it's the fact that these documents are pretty much verified to come from the periods that they come from. Mm -hmm. And one of those proofs that you might be able to see it as purely internal, but really is is supported by external evidences. And this is a proof that God says He uses to show that this is from Him. Is He says such and such a thing is going to happen in the future. When he made his promise to Abraham, he said, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. And that turned out to be so. Mm -hmm. And Jesus even said to his apostles, see, I'm telling you in advance, so when it comes to pass, you're going to know that this is all true. Other thoughts, questions, comments about that? Yeah, one thing, Jesus said that uh, they're, they're admiring the walls outside of, I think, Jerusalem. He and his disciples, well, his disciples were. And then Jesus tells them, you know, it's going to be a day soon when every single stone here is going to be destroyed. Not not one of them is going to be standing on top of the other. And then something like 30, 40 years later, the Romans came and yeah. ransacked Jerusalem. I mean, they just destroyed it. Broke everything. Destroyed the temple. And they made a point. The Romans made a point when they destroyed the temple to make sure that not one stone was left on top of another. So it's interesting. It was a wording that Jesus used, and it actually came to pass. So it wasn't just a figure of speech that he used, but absolutely literally came to pass that they made sure not one stone was left on top of another. And, and one reason that I've heard why they did that is because 
in Jesus' time, one day when the disciples were looking at it, saying, look, this is an amazing, you know, piece of architecture. It was because the walls of Jerusalem were gilded in gold. So imagine just these huge walls covered, you know, in just gold leaf, basically. And when, when the Romans came in, they burned the city, which melted all the gold, you know, off of the rocks. So to get all the pieces of gold, which was basically their wages, you know, part of their wages for taking over the city, they could pillage the city. They literally ripped down every single stone to get that gold that had melted. So I mean, you know, it's a cool, it's cool how that happened. Yeah, because the Romans had no reason to want to make Jesus's prophecy come true. So there's a lot of that sort of thing, and that's why the Bible has endured as it's the word of God. Does that bring any other questions to mind, or? Uh, no, I mean, I, I did have some before, but you guys were able to kind of refute the question right, 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 before right. I asked that, so yeah. Now, what about some of these other books that claim to be the Word of God? Such as? The Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness Bible. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Can the same thing be said of, let's, for example, can the same thing be said of the Book of Mormon? I don't think so. Yeah, the answer is no. See, the Bible was written over a period of... 2,000 years. Yeah, almost 2,000 years. Right, right, right. By multiple people, you know, all right. following the same exact central idea that eventually you know, ended up with Jesus and then Jesus' teachings basically afterwards. Whereas these other books are, you know, written by one person, usually either Muhammad in the case of the Quran or John Smith or something like that. John Smith. Or the Book of Mormon. You know, it's just doesn't quite it not so I'm not saying that disproves those, but it definitely hurts its validity. That's one of the things that accounts for some of this variety. Some people believe in different books. Well, you have to use the same criteria that we use to establish that the Bible is the Word of God on these other books, and it just doesn't work. Like Jeremy said, it was written over a long period of time by different people, and the different people that were contributing their little part we're not necessarily completely aware how their little part fit into the big picture. It's kind of like if you've uh, got a symphony orchestra, right, and you hear somebody just practicing their part, and their part is not very interesting. Then you hear that person with the orchestra, and you hear now the whole piece of music. Now I understand how those notes that guy was playing fit into the total picture of the, the piece that was being played. I once heard someone comparing it to like a mosaic, each little colored bit of stuff, you know, you don't know what that's going to be. And if you're really focused in on it, if you're looking at the uh, JPEG really up close and just at each pixel and you go, I don't know what that is, it's just a bunch of dots. And then you step back and you see the full picture. So that's one of the things about the Bible. And to me, like, one of the cooler things is the one, one of the things that I guess really makes me think that it would be so, so difficult for the Bible to be false 
is the fact that all of these prophecies happened, you know, to this one people group thousands of years ago, and then nothing basically happened, or at least nothing was reported for the next 400 years until this one person was born and fulfilled all of these prophecies, you know, perfectly. There's, there's not, as far as I've ever heard, there's not one instance of Jesus not having fulfilled one of the prophecies in the Old Testament. So, I mean, how could you, you know, even, even the best writers today, you know, I don't know who you consider the best, but like, you know, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or um, Game of Thrones guy, I can't remember the name, or, or Harry Potter, you know, even they have, you know, they spent their life doing, you know, writing these books, but they have plot holes in their, in their stories. So, how, you know, how, if you were just making this up, how could you have something that fits together so perfectly? That that's mind-boggling, right? At the time when Jesus was raised from the dead, that's what they said about him. He was raised from the dead. He was the, he was the Son of God. You could have somebody that is a, a famous figure, and then down through the years, people make up stories about like Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and they become a larger-than-life figure as the story gets amplified and made up things, but. Facts about Jesus were known and communicated contemporary with his life and you know, death and resurrection. Pretty much what we testify to today. Any other thoughts or questions you have or anything like that? Anything yeah. at all. I mean, anything normally at all. we just, you know, if anybody has a question, we'll just go with that. If, if not, you know, we'll have something else. But just go ahead and do. Okay. Uh, no, nothing at the moment. Is it possible to be pleasing to God and not be religious? That's a good question. Um, yes. Is it possible to be pleasing to God but not necessarily religious? Right. Um, I don't know. I've been told that, like, you know, everybody's a sinner, so, like, no one's always a hundred percent or ever really a hundred percent pleasing to God right right everyone has right. their own cross to bear right 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 um so um I guess you could be pleasing to God but I also in the Bible don't you have to accept Jesus as your personal savior for it to even matter it doesn't matter if you're a good person you actually have to give your I guess, soul to Jesus. I don't know the proper way of saying that, but right. You have to believe in Jesus, and then you have to repent, which means you have to accept the fact that much of what you've been doing has not been according to Jesus' instructions, and say, okay, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the repenting part. So you believe, and you repent, and then you're baptized. One of the very first things that happens when you come to believe and then you repent is that you're baptized. I suppose it was your background, you were baptized. I was not. You were not baptized? No. Okay. And why were you not baptized? Um... Because you said you were originally Church of God. Yeah. Church of God baptized. Yeah, they, they do. Um, it's just when it, whenever I accepted Jesus, I was nine years old, and I had noticed that after um, 
some members of the church had been baptized, that's when things got really bad for them and things went south for them. So, um, yeah, so I just um, never, it's not that I didn't want to, I just didn't kind of, as a nine-year-old, want to test my fate, sort of. So, and um, I don't know, I just got older and it just never happened. Gotcha. Can you accept Jesus and not be baptized? I don't know. I think, isn't baptism just a public um, showing that you have accepted Jesus? I've heard people say that. discussion of, yeah, whether you have to be baptized to be saved or not. So how do we settle that then? So yeah. the question is, how do you know whether to do something or not? Like, in general, but specifically talking, you know, about Christianity. I guess. Go back to the Bible. Go back right. to the Bible. Exactly. The question is, where does that appear in the Bible? Does that appear in the Bible where it says, well, well that baptism is it's just a ceremonial thing or just an outward expression? Can you find that verse? Or is it just simply that we're told to be baptized? Mm -hmm. And so why wouldn't we? If you're accepting Jesus, and accepting Jesus kind of means what? You're accepting him as... Your personal Lord and Savior. Yeah, okay, so you're accepting him as Lord, and Lord means what? The one who rules over you. Master. Then that means if he tells you to do something, you, you do, do it. Who did Jesus give the job of passing his instructions out to the world to? Us, Christians. Before that, though, in a. John the Baptist, his disciple. The apostles, because okay. the apostles were the ones that he said, you will be my witnesses, he says, to the apostles in Jerusalem, Judea, and then throughout the ends of the earth. And it was to his apostles that he gave the Great Commission to, to preach the gospel to every living thing. Now, it gets passed on to us because the apostles are gone, but we have the instructions that were from Jesus through his apostles. So, if an apostle is doing his job of giving the instructions of Jesus, then if we're accepting Jesus as our master, then we're going to accept what the apostles tell us to do. In Acts chapter 2, just to settle this question about baptism and whether or not it's pure, and whether or not we need to look at it as something that's symbolic or not, let's just see. In Acts chapter 2, and Acts, this is the day of Pentecost, and there's this miraculous thing that happens, they're speaking in tongues, etc., the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel to these people there, some of them who were also there when Jesus was crucified. Some of them were probably in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So the Apostle Peter says in verse 36, of like the summary of his sermon in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, he said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? Heartbroken? Yes, basically. You know, this really affected them to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. So the people that were asking, what shall we do? They're asking what shall we do to indicate that they believed what he was saying. 
Because the people who didn't believe him, there were probably a bunch of people in that crowd who didn't believe it, didn't ask the question, they were like, okay, that's interesting, let's go, you know, get a burger or something. But the people who were cut to the heart because they believed what he was saying, then they said, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is he just talking to them there in that crowd, or is he talking to succeeding generations? Well, then in verse 39 says, For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What's he telling them to do? Repent and be baptized. Right, right. So, on the one hand, he's the one that's relaying the instruction from the Lord and Master, and he says to repent and be baptized. What should we do then if we believed? Repent and be baptized. <laughs> exactly. Period. Yeah. And there are some people that want to make the argument that you don't need to be baptized. And there are also some people who, who want to call something baptism that isn't baptism. What does the New Testament say about baptism? Well, they were immersed in water. That's the thing, you know, they were, we have verses about that. John the Baptist was baptizing by the Jordan River. There's plenty of water. The Ethiopian eunuch said, here's a body of water that prevents me from being baptized. So baptism is an immersion. Now, when I was a child being raised Catholic, I had water sprinkled on my head, and they call that baptism. Well, that's not baptism according to what the Bible says. So I had to be actually baptized when I realized that I had not been baptized. Then it goes on to say in verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they baptized 3,000 people. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then skip down to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That has an interesting thing. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In some translations, and the Lord added to the church. What's the meaning of the word church? Group, gathering? Yeah, just a yeah, group of people, assembly, you know, crowd. There's actually a place in Acts 19 where there's a disorderly crowd that's about to stone Paul. And the same word, the same Greek word, ekklesia, is used to say, well, this, you know, this, this crowd is becoming disorderly. So church just means crowd. Usually today people think church means a building. Yeah, building stained glass with you know, towers or whatever. But that's not what the church is. There are some translations of this verse, of verse 47, saying the Lord added to the church day by day those who are being saved. But you can see that they were a group of people who did certain things. And God was the one who put those who were being saved into that group. And how did they get into that group? Well, they believed, they repented, they were baptized. And the reason why I mentioned this first, because this touches upon the thing we were discussing earlier, is it possible to, to be spiritual and not religious? Or is it possible to be pleasing to God 
and not be religious? And the answer that I was looking for is obviously no. Yeah. And you made a good point. Well, we're all not pleasing to God, which is absolutely true. So we have to do something then to become pleasing to God. And the thing that we have to do is, like you also answered correctly, if we take Jesus as Lord, well, if we take Jesus as Lord, then we're going to do what he says. And he tells us to believe, repent, follow the apostles' teachings. So the apostles taught that they should all gather together and do certain things. So can someone by themselves, and many people believe this, many people believe that the main thrust of religious activity is that, you know, you live an ethical life. You're, an, you're a good ethical person. You're, trying, you're not trying to, to rob anybody or steal their money or whatever. So that's what religion is all about, you know, doing to others. You know, every, every religion has their version of the golden rule. So that's what religion is, basically. You're supposed to do unto others. That's what many people believe. That's not what the Bible teaches us. What the Bible teaches us is that's a result of taking Jesus as your Lord and following in the teachings. He teaches you all those things. But what God is looking for, I'll ask this question, and I know that, um, that Jeremy will be able to answer it. So we see that in the New Testament. God is looking for people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, before Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he wasn't saying, be disciples of Jesus Christ. What has God always been looking for from human beings? Two things. You want me to answer? Yeah, answer that question. He's looking for them to have faith and be righteous. Okay. What do I usually say? I'll give you a hint. What's the name of the podcast? Okay. Believe and follow. The way God structures the relationship with human beings is he makes promises and gives instructions. The response that he's looking for is us to believe his promises and follow his instructions. That's been consistent. You know, God has spoken in various ways at various times to various people. He told Noah to do what? Build an ark, exactly. Did he tell Abraham to build an ark? No, what did he tell Abraham to do? He said, I'm going to give you a promise. What, what the promise? But what did, he tell, what did Abraham have to do? He had to be faultless. He had to move. Well, first he had to move, because where was he living? He was living in Ur of the Chaldees. He was living in Babylon. The first thing God said to him is, take your whole family, your entire kid and caboodle, and move to the land of Canaan. He didn't even say that. He said, move to a place where I'm going to tell you. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God knew that Abraham believed him. But how do we know that Abraham believed God. God said it, and then One. second, he fulfilled his promises to him, I guess, I would say. That's one way to put it, but look at it in the context of the way God sets it up. We know that Abraham believed God because he followed his instructions. That's the thing. I get up in the morning, I've done this a number of times, right? You get up in the morning, you see the weather report, See, the sun's shining like it is now, but the weatherman says, better take your umbrella, it's going to rain today. You look out your window and you go, what are you talking about? There's not a cloud in the sky. I'm not going to take my umbrella. I don't believe what the weatherman is saying, 
And so I'm not going to follow his instructions. So then I go out and it's cloudy and I go, uh-oh, and I get rained on. I get wet because I'm not prepared because I didn't believe what the weatherman was telling me. A couple of days later, the same thing happens and the weatherman says, it's going to rain today. And I look and I go, there's not a cloud in the sky, but having seen the example of what happened before, I'm going to go, okay, well, now I better bring my umbrella. Because now I believed what the weatherman said and I followed his instructions. Now when the rain comes, I'm prepared. That's pretty much the theme of many of these stories in the Bible. Genesis 6, the world had become so evil that God says, I'm going to destroy it with a flood. But he says to Noah, yeah, I'm going to give you these instructions to build this big ark. So when the flood waters come, you, you, you'll be safe. And he managed to convince how many people? Seven total. Seven total. So they were eight in all. So when the, the flood came, they were saved. Because why? Because not only did Noah believe God, but Noah precisely followed his instructions. And as a matter of fact, Genesis said, Noah did exactly what God had instructed him to do. It seems like Noah was a farmer. So what did he know about building arcs when there was going to be a worldwide flood? He had to follow God's instructions. How did he know it was going to work? So he follows God's instruction exactly. The floods come, and he's spared. You know? So what God is looking is for us to believe his promise, follow his instructions. What is the promise that we have? Now, fast forward to now. And what's the promise that we have set before us? While you guys are thinking about that, just take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Jeremy could probably recite this by heart. Whoever gets there first can read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Thank you. These are the verses that just say what I've been saying, right? In the past, God has said various things to various people. But now he speaks to us through his son. So we don't have to read the Bible and say, oh, look at that. God told Noah to build a big boat. I better build a big ark. Or Abraham to move to Canaan. I got to move to Canaan. Now, the instructions, he gave instructions to certain people at certain times. So the instructions for us today are the instructions given through his son, Jesus Christ. So he's the one that we should listen to. So the answer to the question that I asked. What's the promise that we have? There may be a few good answers to this, but what's the biggest one? What are we looking forward to? Believe him and we're saved to eternity? Alright, yeah. Saved from what? <laughs> ourselves, our sins, death. All correct answers. Because when Jesus came in the flesh, he preached the gospel for three years got on the wrong side of the religious people in Jerusalem, which is an interesting thing. It was not necessarily the, the uh, government authorities and the secular authorities who had any problem with Jesus, but it was the religious people. The people who considered themselves the chosen people of God had a problem with Jesus and incited the authorities to do what? To put him to death. 
preaches for three years, he gets put to death. Did it solve that problem for the, for the those Jewish people that didn't want to believe in Jesus? No, because then what happened not long after he was put to death? He was raised from the dead. Now, that's a hard thing to argue with. Because he was put to death in a public place, publicly. If you didn't see him dying on the cross, you at least heard about it. If then, sometime after that, you hear that he's, he's out and about walking and talking, that's going to be something that you're going to take note of, right? You've known people who died, right? Yeah. Have you heard from them again after they died? Generally, when someone dies, that's the last you hear from them. So we think from that understanding of the physical world that death is an ending. But what does the Bible teach us about? What's a better synonym for death? Your sins have blanked you from God. Isaiah. Separated. Yeah, and the wages of sin is death. So, a sin is connected to death. And death is a separation. When someone dies, they're dead to us. They're separated from us. So they continue to exist, even though all physical evidence is that they're gone. Because now they're separated from us. But they continue to exist. So Jesus, after he resurrected, what did he promise he was going to do? Right. So Jesus is resurrected and then he ascends to heaven. And what did he promise he was going to do right before he ascended into heaven? Come back. Come back. And what's going to happen when he comes back? Then death is going to be no more. But I don't know if that's exactly what, that's what he said. What's he going to do when he comes back? What activity is the big activity that he's going to initiate when he returns? People. A lot of different answers, but it's going to raise everyone from the dead. It's right. Separate the right. There you go. From the exactly. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's it's going to be something that people call Judgment Day. So those of us who have followed his instructions are going to be what? Going to a place that has been prepared for us. That's going to be nice. Those of us who have not followed his instructions are not going to be going to the place prepared with the Father. They're going to go into another place, which Jesus says about it, it's a place that is... Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right, weeping and gnashing of teeth, exactly. Which means what? Are you happy if you're weeping and gnashing your teeth? <laughs> Extremely unhappy. <laughs> so what's the promise then? We went through that whole bit to just figure out what's the big promise that we have. We have this promise of eternal life, right? I mean, you could technically say it looks like the other group has eternal life also. Well, yeah, exactly. They're still alive, but look at this word. Look at the word death. They have what? They get eternal death, meaning eternal separation from God. You know, basically it's one place where God is and one place where God is not. Where do we want to be? 
Yeah, we want to be where God is because of all the good things come from God and we see that Satan's working to undo that and to undo us, then who do we want to spend eternity with? We want to spend eternity with God or the guy that's that's the un-God? <laughs> well, when you put it that way, <laughs> it's a no-brainer. If you have any questions or comments, especially if you disagree, please feel free to email me at james at believeandfollow.org. Special thanks to Jeremy and Esteban for their participation in this week's podcast. That's all for now. Goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be dear.